0: America and Happy Friday. What a great lineup we have for you today. You're going to hear from one of the very first big tech whistleblowers to blow the whistle on censorship, on suppression of free speech. This long predates the Twitter files that Elon Musk has been releasing and shocking us all with. Cassandra Spencer, she was a contractor for Facebook and she came out in 2018 through Project Veritas James O'Keefe's group and began to reveal what was going on in the suppression of content in the Facebook realm. And it was the first hint that a thumb was on the scale that conservatives were being targeted. And from that, we have now learned so many different ways, including that the United States government, in the form of the FBI, the intelligence community, even in the form of Adam Schiff, were making requests and succeeding at censoring people. A pretty remarkable... Set of revelations, but it all began. The first real whistleblower, the first real inkling of a systemic effort to censor content in America, it came from Cassandra Spencer. She later wrote a book about this. It's a very powerful book, Impact colon, How I Went Behind Enemy Lines in Our Struggle Against the Far Left. Cassandra Spencer is going to join us at the top of the show to talk about what she knows. And her warning is very cogent. Her warning is. There are far more people and far more instances, far more entities involved in censorship, and it goes way earlier than 2020, which is where the Twitter files sort of focus our attention on the 2020 election. She says it really began in the immediate aftermath of the 2016 election. And so we're going to learn a lot from Cassandra Spencer today. you can to enjoy that conversation. Straight up, honest answers from uh, a whistleblower whose book, by the way, has gotten a lot of attention. And then in the second half of the show, we're going to bring in a former member of Congress, former chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, former ambassador to the Netherlands during the Trump years, Congressman Pete is going to join us for the second half of the show. We're going to talk about that censorship again because we now know it wasn't just the FBI, it was other intelligence agencies as well involved in the censorship suppression of content debates and activities of Twitter and big tech. We also have a lot to talk about. He'll give us his insights as someone who was in Congress for many, many years, what's going on with the leadership election involving Kevin McCarthy. Today, as we reported on the TV show last night, significant progress has been made and there is a deal on the cusp. Today, 13 of the Holdouts have flipped their vote to McCarthy. They've got the concessions they want on spending. And so that is moving towards a resolution. It could happen today, tomorrow, Monday, but it's moving towards a resolution. looks like Kevin McCarthy may, may be the speaker now. It's certainly, his chances have significantly improved with what we've seen. So that's our show today. It's a really good lineup. I really want you to pay attention to what Ambassador Hoekstra and I are going to talk about because there is some really important, Revelations that haven't fully been absorbed by many in the public because we're so busy, right? It happened over the holidays, which is always a bad time for news. But the United States Intelligence Committee, including the director of national intelligence's office, was having conversations with big tech aimed at trying to get certain content off the platforms, some of it posted by Americans. That is a really stunning revelation as the former chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, he's going to have some pretty powerful things to say. So we'll have that as part of today's show. You're going to really enjoy that. And, of course, Cassandra Spencer, on the other side, she's inside one of the big tech companies seeing how the sausage was being produced, the the censorship machinery, how it actually works. So we're going to take you on both sides of that extraordinary debate today. If you want to stay in touch with what's been going on the Hill, well, Nick Ballasy, who you heard all week, he'll be out there reporting. Check out JustTheNews.com. We'll have you covered all day long. All right. We'll be back in a few seconds with Cassandra Spencer, the whistleblower, the first person to come out of the big tech community and tell us there is suppression of speech going on. She's going to tell us what she learned at Facebook and about the other major big tech companies right after we get back from this. Hey, folks, have you heard of cancer fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and vegetables may actually lower Thanks to our good friends at BrickHouse Nutrition, Field of Greens is going to give you a 15% off discount plus free rush shipping. All you got to do is go to fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS for your discount. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Fieldofgreens.com, promo code JUSTNEWS. Go check it out. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners.
1: Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret?
0: All right, folks, welcome back for the commercial break. We've been talking a lot over the last year about censorship. We've done a lot of work on Homeland Security, the FBI, the Twitter files. Our next guest takes us into a whole nother realm where censorship and thought suppression was going on. She was a whistleblower inside Facebook, and her book, Impact, really begins to illuminate for all of us how the left co-opted these large big tech companies and used them to suppress thought in America. Joining us right now for the first time is Cassandra Spencer. Cassandra, great to have you on the show. Happy to be here. Your book is fantastic. The story that you tell is amazing. And I think now in light of the Twitter files, I think people are beginning to see what you were laying out months ago, which is big tech was really a much larger enterprise working together. There are four or five different companies that are probably all intersecting with the same goal. But before we get to that big picture thought, tell us a little bit about yourself. You worked in the army, ended up working with James O'Keefe undercover for a while. Help us understand how you got to that moment.
1: Yeah, I always tell people, I think I sort of Forrest to my way through life. <laughs> um, you know, I went to college, um, went to started off at a very liberal university, New York University, and um, during the height of the Iraq War, and I decided that I wanted to join the military during that time, which was a very odd choice for somebody in that position during that period of time. Um, and I did it because, you know... I saw so many students, very privileged people, arguing about war and, you know, who should be sent to war and potentially sent to die, and yet none of these people would ever set foot um, in any of these places. And so I decided that I was going to join the Army because I didn't think it was right to argue about whether to send people to war or not without being willing to set foot in it yourself. Um, Of course, by the time I commissioned, it was 2010, so a lot of things had died down. (laughs) Um, but, uh, I ended up working, um, being the public affairs officer for a unit that oversaw intelligence for the army for Asian, the Pacific Rim. So I served there, um, got out and then I found myself in Austin, Texas, um, with a contract gig that was going to hopefully convert to full-time at Facebook in Austin, Texas. So, um, I start doing my job. I think to myself, like, oh, great, you know, here's me breaking into the civilian sector. I'm going to make some money now. And within a couple months of me working there, I started to notice odd notes on accounts, um, specifically conservative accounts. I wasn't even looking for anything. It was just something that, you know, when I'd be reviewing um, accounts for different actions, typically intellectual property, that was what I did, I would notice account notes that didn't have to do with intellectual property on the back end. Um, So from there, I ended up deciding to give this information to James O'Keefe over at Project Veritas, and I actually became the start of their insider program. Um, So I was the first, uh, this is back in 2017, 2018, but a lot of things that we're seeing and uh, seeing the results of now, these are things that started, you know, pretty soon after the election of Donald Trump. Um, I, I think that was really the catalyst that escalated both the tech companies internally and now what we've seen with the Twitter files, the federal government's hand in really strong arming the tech companies to come to the conclusions that they wanted them to find, even if the evidence didn't support that.
0: Yeah, it's extraordinary. A lot of people think, well, maybe it was a two-year saga. It starts in 1920, 21. This actually goes back to right after Trump wins and— The left is mortified of what a Trump administration might mean for their agenda after the Obama years. I want to ask you, you get into this contract position, you start to see these notes on the accounts of prominent conservatives. Give us the sentiments that these notes expressed and the sort of type of conservative account they were targeting.
1: Right. And so um, whenever I would get a ticket um, of something to potentially action on an account, you know, you go and you look at the whole account and on the back end, you can see the notes of any actions that have ever been taken on that account. Like if I were to issue a copyright strike against your account, it would say, you know, copyright strike issued, my name, and it would say like user notified, right? Um, but what I started noticing is I started noticing counts that said um, IA boost live distribution. And... It only appeared on conservative accounts. The first time I saw the note, I was like, oh, that's a weird note. I've never seen that one before. Um, And it even had the engineer's name on it who had written this code. And so what I found out after, you know, looking through hundreds, if not thousands of accounts um, just via the tickets that would come through on a daily basis is that, These notes were only being applied to conservative accounts, um, particularly independent media accounts that would potentially have any sort of reach. Um, And that's why you would see um, Facebook accounts, even starting back then, who had, you know, millions of followers. If they went live on their page, um, their followers wouldn't be notified. They'd maybe have 200 people watching their live stream. Which doesn't jive with, you know, a following of over a million people.
0: Do you remember some of the accounts? Do you remember what sort of people were being targeted? And also what is that acronym? You know that notation means basically if they if they do a live stream, suppress their live stream, right? That's that was sort of the strategy that Facebook was instructing its staff to do.
1: Yes. As far as I from every bit of documentation that we've been able to find both while I was inside Facebook and things that were corroborated later. Yes, that's exactly what it was doing. Um, some of the accounts that I did see this on is I saw this on the daily callers account. Um, I saw this on Steven Crowder's account. Um, and you know, some of these people are paying to advertise on the platform and so these actions one of the biggest issues is that these actions would be taken against accounts without the user's knowledge which to me just struck me as profoundly wrong especially for people who were paying money good money to advertise on the platform
0: Mm. that's absolutely amazing to hear now along the way as you dig in and you begin to understand all right there is a thumb on the scale there's a suppression system here it's politically driven to suppress conservative thought over liberal thought or every other thought, do you get a notion that maybe what was going on at Facebook wasn't isolated to Facebook? Did you get some hints that maybe Twitter, Facebook, Google, and the others that they either were working together or they had similar sort of modus operandi to create suppressed thought?
1: You know, as I I did more than one contracting gig at a tech company, and as I kind of worked my way through the industry, I noticed that it was a very pervasive thought. Um, but when I really had those suspicions confirmed is eventually I became an undercover journalist at Project Veritas, where I investigated a lot of these you know, um, big tech issues. And I had a chance one time to sit down with Jen Jenai, who was a Google executive who was uh, previously in charge of trust and safety And she talked about how um, these tech companies would get together and talk about how they were trying to prevent the next, quote unquote, Trump situation. Um, This is back in 2019 when we had this conversation. And it had a lot to do with how Google was manipulating the search results, which you can still see the effects of today. For instance, if you type in, if you open up like an incognito window, so fresh Google, and you type in Hunter Biden it does not complete to Hunter Biden laptop even though that's probably the thing people are searching for most i think it like the first result is like Hunter Biden paintings no one cares about Hunter Biden's paintings <laughs> so um it's a lot of subtle and some not so subtle manipulation like we've seen with the twitter files where the federal government was demanding um that tech companies ban accounts some of them and that's where you're talking about just banning everyday people, not even prominent people, just your everyday citizen.
0: Extraordinary. Now we see in the documents that Justin News is able to get from Homeland Security Department that there were these group meetings where multiple executives from multiple big tech companies were meeting with the FBI, meeting with Homeland Security, meeting with CISA, the uh, Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency. And they were having these sort of group think, group speak things. And while they were allegedly worried about foreign influence, they really were just censoring everyday Americans. When, so you get this whole story out about Facebook. And I want to remind people one other thing. You also had some pretty interesting revelations about the Beto Aurora campaign. Tell us a little bit about what you learned and saw there.
1: Yeah. So um, after I left Facebook, you know, and I became an undercover journalist, my first assignment was actually in Beto's Senate campaign back in 2018. And that really opened my eyes. Um, A lot of my book, I talk about some of the different adventures I had while I was undercover with Project Veritas. But in the Beto campaign, you know, they were (laughs) using campaign resources to help migrants who were crossing the border. Um, At one point, This didn't make the cut in the final Project Veritas video. I was with Beto O'Rourke staffers who wanted to dumpster dive basically into the goodwill donation bin to take things to give to the migrants.
0: Unbelievable.
1: So, I mean, I was with them pushing the carts through the store, you know, delivering goods to the migrants and, uh, You know, I had a lot of really great experiences exposing voter fraud. One gentleman who I investigated was actually convicted of a felony um, in New Hampshire. And then I was in Bernie Sanders' primary campaign. Um, A lot of people have seen the video of the Bernie Sanders staffer who talked about how, you know, cities would burn if Bernie wasn't elected and talked about putting uh, Republicans in basically in concentration camps. That was all me as well as a partner.
0: You really get a sense of the far left's fervor for not just domination, but elimination of anyone who doesn't agree. I mean, that's what when you look at the videos you were able to help put out there and the information you put out there. Now we get to see what the government and big tech were doing together. This has been a long coordinated effort that perhaps Stayed below the radar until you came forward. Now, you come forward, and then, of course, you take a beating for a while, as all people do when they come out as a whistleblower. Now, Twitter comes out, and they basically not only affirm what you're saying, but saying, hey, this was widespread, and we were doing things just as bad as Facebook, and in some cases, different. How validating, how vindicating was the moment when Elon Musk started to release the Twitter files for you?
1: Oh, it was it was incredibly validating. And I I think I saw an interview where he said basically every conspiracy theory that people had about Twitter turned out to be true. (laughs) And, you know, and it's one thing when, you know, especially when we did this, we didn't reveal my identity at first. So I'm just some unknown person. I'm a nobody. Um, You know, I'm not prominent. I'm not a public figure. I'm certainly not a billionaire like Elon Musk. Right. And so it was very easy for Facebook to dismiss the things that I had disclosed in 2018. They just basically wanted to ignore me and hope that I went away. But I think now that we're seeing um, with the Twitter files, and I think if our elected officials really put pressure on Google and Facebook to open up and be more transparent about their involvement, you know, with the FBI, CIA, um, all these uh, governmental agencies, I think we'll see a lot more. Um, because Twitter's user base is nothing compared to the size of Facebook.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, Facebook is so much larger, and of course, Google touches everything, and so every person is in some way connected to Google through through the the way the internet was built on its search engine and its other capabilities. The big question now is, as Elon Musk said, these weren't conspiracy theories. There was a big tech government liberal. Consortium working together that suppress thought that they didn't like. And, and of course, that's anathema to what our founding fathers started. There's a reason the first amendment's the first amendment. It's because they believe that free speech was the first key right for a free people. What is the? panacea. I'm sure you've given a lot of thought about this, Cassandra. What you saw is so jarring, and now it's going to become widely accepted that this was going on. You even start to see some mainstream media starting to grudgingly acknowledge, well, this maybe isn't American. What are the solutions? How do we make the sort of change that these institutions, the government agencies, don't continue to engage in the sort of suppression that we now have documented?
1: I think that First, we need to see exactly who is making these calls um, to build these relationships and who is issuing the orders for the FBI to put pressure on these tech companies. So I think really we're still in the infancy stages of it. We need to expose and so that we know all the information and that the public has it all. And from there, we can um, come up with public policy prescriptions for some of the things we've seen. But I think really the Twitter files, were just scratching the surface. We need the Facebook files and we need the Google files.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I suspect there are other platforms. I mean, I've, I've heard people raise concerns about LinkedIn and its suppression policies. And so I think you're right. The daylight is the first antiseptic, right? We got to get more and more out there. Do you think from the people you worked with that there are other people like you willing to come forward now, willing to help us understand just how bad the situation was?
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, um, after I went to Project Veritas, they've had many other insiders, many of whom um, I still keep in touch with today. And all it takes is somebody who's in the right position, who is ready to do the right thing. And a lot of what my book is about is really just encouraging people. I'm not somebody, you know, I was a single mom in college I wasn't anything extraordinary. And, you know, I was able to, because I was in the right place in the right time, and I had the guts to do the right thing. Um, Anybody can do that if they find themselves in that position.
0: I think there's a call for courage. I think what you you showed is that being courageous can make a difference, too, because I think you're the first major crack in the ice. When your work starts coming out through Project Veritas, that was the first time that there was a crack in the ice. Uh, Before that, there was a big, giant iceberg protecting us from seeing anything going on in big tech. And so, you know, we'd sit there and say, well, it can't be possible. I have a million followers and I get no traffic from from Facebook or Twitter. There were suspicions, but you cracked the ice, and then, of course, Elon Musk has created a large gap in that iceberg now. It is remarkable. You went through a lot of personal punishment after this, though, right? There's a period of time. Tell us a little bit about what happens to you personally, the cost of being a whistleblower.
1: So, um, in addition to, and I've told this story before, and it's in the book, um, after being held basically in an interrogation room for two hours by Facebook security, um, I lost my job, Uh, I had to go on food stamps for six weeks until I found another job because, you know, I am an adult, I'm going to find another job. But um, that sudden loss like that, um, as well as it even bled into a family court battle, um, which is another, you know, huge issue in our country, separate issue, but the, it bled into my family court battle. And uh, as a result, um I've had very little contact with my daughter for nearly 5 years.
0: Wow. When you step out and you look at what you exposed, what momentum it gave towards understanding the threat to free speech, would you do this again even though you've paid a, such a significant price for it?
1: Yes. Um I do believe and it's something that James used to tell me um as I was kind of going through some of these struggles, he would often um send me the Martin Luther King Jr. quote, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I do sincerely believe that. Um, I think that it's not an easy path to take. It's not going to be smooth. It's certainly not glamorous. But I do think that it is worth it in the end.
0: Yeah, it certainly has been worth it to the country because we have been, because of the crack in the ice that you started and now what Elon Musk has really opened into a more significant window, we're beginning to see something that I think most of us when we grew up didn't think we'd ever imagine in our lifetime, that government and monopolistic big tech could be working together to just target people they didn't like and to suppress their stories and their thoughts and their opinions And for the rest of the country, that is a public service that we will always be indebted to you for. It's such an amazing moment to realize that in the freest country in the world, that one of our greatest freedoms could be so easily dismissed and taken and hidden behind a window. We couldn't see it, right? The window shades were down and we couldn't see it until you came forward. And I think that has brought us all to a greater sense of awareness. When you think now, Cassandra, what's the next battle beyond just getting more visibility and shaming those who are involved in this and getting the accountability there, there is a intellectual mindset change that's occurred in America. For most of my generation, I'm Gen X, and you know, freedom of speech was just absolute. You never assumed. And the answer was, if you didn't like someone's free speech, the answer wasn't censoring it. It was, use your free speech to counter it There is an entire generation of Americans who've been embedded in these big tech companies that either in their college or K through 12 learning were told that free speech doesn't have to be totally free, that it can be selective. How do we begin to change the mindset of a generation that may have been told that free speech really isn't as important as our founding fathers intended it to be?
1: You know, um, they say that all politics is local. I think it starts Even smaller than that, I think it starts with having conversations with your kids, Um, you know, when it comes to if your kids are school age, if you're not able to homeschool or something like that, um, electing good school board members that can kind of combat um, an institution that's been so dominated by the left for so long. So, And then at a higher level, you know, really putting pressure on our elected representatives. We've had how many hearings with these tech executives, but a lot of times um, all we get are sound bites and we need to start seeing action on it. And people asking the right questions who have the technical knowledge to be able to ask those questions.
0: If you're a mom or a dad, a grandma, grandpa, aunt and uncle, and you're listening today, remember that take some time to invest in the next generation of Americans and reinstill the idea that freedom matters, liberty matters, free speech matters. And if you don't agree with someone's opinion, that's okay. But censoring them is not the solution. That's bullying in the free speech space. Cassandra, it's an amazing opportunity to talk to you. Your book is amazing. Folks, if you haven't gotten a copy of this book and you care about this country, you care about free speech, go out and buy a copy. It's on Amazon. You can get it so easily. Impact. Uh, colon how i went behind enemy lines in our struggle against the far left unbelievable read unbelievable story and uh, on behalf of a grateful nation cassandra because you really did help us begin to understand just how bad this was we want to thank you for coming forward and being a whistleblower having the courage to do that now it's our job to follow this through and make sure we get all the rest of the truth out and that's where we pick up the ball from you thank you so much today
1: oh thank you for the opportunity happy to talk to
0: you anytime it's a great opportunity we really enjoyed it and happy new year to you all right folks don't go anywhere when we come back former ambassador former congressman former chairman of the house intelligence committee pete Hookstreck, going to join us so you're not going to want to miss that we'll be right back with his conversation right after these messages All right, folks, as we draw near to another critical election, it's not only about casting your vote. and so much more. It's a community, not a service. Take advantage of our election year sale: four years for just thirty dollars at AMAC. By joining over two million Americans, they can't ignore your voice in Washington anymore. Join now at AMAC. just justnews That's AMAC. justnews All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. Our next guest doesn't need much of an introduction. He is a former congressman, former chairman of the House Intelligence Committee and the former ambassador to the Netherlands under President Trump and one of the smartest security and political minds I've ever met in my time in Washington. He is Pete Hoekstra. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, good to have you on the show, sir. Always good to be with you. Thank you, John. I love it when you come on because we get, we can go anywhere and have a great conversation. You've, you've been in so many important roles over the years. I want to start with uh, your old colleagues in the house. Uh, people are watching this extraordinary debate play out on the house floor. A little bit of movement today where some of the holdouts are now falling in line with the deal on McCarthy, but your thought of what you've seen. What's the real underlying cause of it and how this might ultimately end up?
2: Well, ultimately, uh, Kevin McCarthy, I believe, will end up being the Speaker of the House. Uh, the underlying cause is, you know, Kevin McCarthy and the this rump group of 20 members, they knew 60 days ago, they knew right the day after the election that Kevin McCarthy didn't have 218 votes. Uh, they should have gotten to work on this the day after the election. Uh, they knew that Kevin McCarthy was going to be the leader of the party, but he didn't have 218 votes, and they should have put in the time, the effort, and the energy to make sure that on January 3, that Republicans came to the House floor united, uh, and that they would have given to Kevin McCarthy 218 votes uh, on that first vote. Uh, Didn't happen. They're going to go 12, 13, 14 votes, and Kevin McCarthy will be elected, uh, but they put the party through a lot of agony, negotiations, you know, and those types of things uh, that could have been done the last two months and should have been done. Lesson learned, get the work done, get the negotiations done, get the coalition to get to 218 well before you go to the floor for a vote.
0: Yeah, no, that is exactly the right recipe that they missed. And then both sides knew. I mean, McCarthy knew he didn't have the votes. here, so side knew they weren't going to give him the votes without negotiation. They both sort of dropped the, <laughs> the ball in terms of uh, resolving this out of the eye of the public, who probably is at this point exhausted by it. I want to ask about one of the things, because you know, everybody has a slightly different reason among the 20 for why they've been in this gridlock. But the most consistent one and the ones who I think have been the most willing to negotiate are people who are worried about the fiscal conservative brand of the Republican Party because after 20 years of just nonstop spending, whether Republicans were in control or not, the same result has happened. And we've taken the, the deficit from $6.7 trillion in 2003 to this year. It'll be $32 trillion. How does the Republican Party, the party of Reagan and Goldwater – reclaim the mantle of financial conservatism it wasn't it was just a quarter century ago where newt gingrich produced a balanced budget now we can't even see a balanced budget with a telescope how do republicans get back into that role of being the advocates and the executors of financial conservatism
2: well number one they're going to have to identify it as one of their priorities uh so identify it as a priority and then act like it uh you know i still remember going to a a conference meeting with john Kasich. i was on the budget committee and it was just before the 94 elections and we were voting on uh you know the budgets and republicans get to put forward a budget and john said i'm going to put forward a detailed budget that gets us to balance And the old bulls in the party said, no, 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 you can't do that. It's going to show cuts and they're going to use that against our, they're going to use it against us in the election. And, you know, we won't win all the seats that we're thinking we're going to win. And Kasich just responded and said, well, I'm putting it on the floor. You can decide whether you're going to vote for it or vote against it, but you're going to have a chance to vote for a balanced budget. Uh, and the consequences will be what they will be, Um, but, but, you know, you're going to be on record as whether you're for balancing the budget or not, and, you know, it took that, you know, it's hard for me to say John's a friend, but I've been very disappointed in some of his positions over the last few years, Um, but that was, you know, that was the leadership exercised by John Kasich, Newt Gingrich, uh, and, you know, Four years later, we balance the budget. And that's what Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans are going to have to do now. Identify it as a priority and then act like it uh, and take the tough votes and demonstrate to the American people how they're going to get there and why it is important. Win the argument and then they can win the vote.
0: And when you look at it right now, do you have any doubt that they've lost that sort of high moral ground that the Republican Party had for so long? And it's such an interesting thing that Republicans in Washington are like so far from fiscal discipline. But some of these Republicans in the states, the the Santuses and the Gnomes, they're actually creating extraordinary movements towards getting rid of income taxes and all. So there's like this bipolar thing. The states are moving towards fiscal servitism under Republicans and Washington has been screaming away from it. Do you think the Washington Republicans really have lost some of that ground with American voter credibility on these issues?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, they voted uh, in a secret ballot in conference to keep earmarks like you're not you want earmarks, but you're not willing to go public uh, and do it. So, yeah, you lose credibility with the American people. Uh, You know, Mitch McConnell goes to what Cincinnati this week, uh, the border of Ohio and Kentucky, to celebrate with Joe Biden on the transportation infrastructure bill just after he signed or helped facilitate the passage of a $1.7 trillion bill on top of, you know, Build Back Better and all of these other kinds of things. Yeah, Republicans, they, they don't have any credibility. Nobody in Washington has credibility on spending right now. Uh, you know, I couldn't, uh, you know, Chip Roy has been making a phenomenal argument the last few days about getting back to fiscal sanity, uh, but he's one of the few.
0: Yeah, it's really remarkable what has happened, and it's going to be an interesting year. The debt ceiling is going to be the next big battle. We'll get through this speakership race, but when that debt ceiling comes due in April, May, whenever it's going to hit, that's going to be the first real test of not only this new alliance of whatever forms behind McCarthy, the new speaker, but also are Republicans this time going to hold the line on spending and start to act like fiscal conservatives? How important is that debate, and what do you expect happens in that moment?
2: There's going to be, uh, you know, the Republicans are going to have a couple of chances where they've got the leverage and, you know, it's the debt ceiling vote is one, uh, the next one will be an omnibus or a spending bills for 2024. Those are the things. And if the Republicans cave on either one of those votes, uh, you know, they're in trouble. And by caving, I mean, you know, <clears throat> they're going to have to ex- exact a hard price out of the Senate and out of the Biden administration that really demonstrates to the American people that they're serious about getting spending under control. Uh, And again, they've got to win the argument. Why is spending getting it under control? We cannot sustain a $30 trillion debt that is bigger than the American economy, and that's driving in inflation. So they've got to tell the American people why this is important for them to get federal spending
0: under control. Starts with owning the narrative. You can own the action after you own the narrative, and the Republicans haven't done a good job on that for some time. I remember in an earlier time frame, Republicans really couldn't describe why getting spending down, why a balanced budget was a good thing. And it seems like owning that narrative again is going to be important. I want to pivot just quickly to one more political question. In your home state, there was a big announcement. Debbie Stabenow is not going to run for re-election in 2024, that makes, I assume, the Michigan Senate seat a little bit more competitive, open seat. In addition, you've got some other tough seats for Democrats to defend, like West Virginia, where Joe Manchin's a little bit of a pickle, and John Tester in Montana. The map looks a little bit better for Republicans in the Senate in 2024, but what's the key for them to take advantage of that?
2: Well, we've got to put up a good candidate. We've got to have a solid organization in Michigan. Debbie Stabenow was a phenomenal candidate. Uh, I didn't dis- I didn't agree with her much in terms of what she was doing uh, in the Senate. But, you know, she she took care of business back home. And so, you know, I ran against her. She beat me solidly. Uh, but uh, this is now a winnable seat uh, for Republicans. If we organize, you put that together with Montana, you put that together uh, with West Virginia, Arizona. All of a sudden, you know, 2024 should be the year where we take the Senate. Uh, and if we've got a solid candidate uh, at the top of the ticket, uh, you know, we're in a good position to have the House, the Senate, uh, and the White House. Uh, and so, but, you know, we're going to have to put in the right candidates, and we're going to have to work our tail off, and we're going to have to perform in 23 and 24 to earn the trust of the American people, that if we're given the reins of Washington, we will do the right thing.
0: Yeah, that's the key. Seeing is believing for voters. I got to see that uh, there's something actually changed in Washington with what happened in the 2022 election. It's going to be interesting to see. On that note, as the Wisconsin, the new Wisconsin Republican party chair has really been an interesting guy to watch his first few days. And he's out there preaching the gospel of, Hey, as long as early voting is legal and it is in your state, you got to engage in it. You can't start election day 100, 200, 300,000 votes behind. Do you think more and more Republicans who kind of resisted the move to early voting realize, after the last few elections, we got to get in this game?
2: Well, absolutely. Because what happens if uh, you don't get in the game and then you end up with lousy weather on election day or the narrative becomes, "Now oh, you know, uh, we're, we're not going to win. Voters stay home. Go out, you know, 30, 60 days, the day that the uh, the election opens, Republicans need to be knocking on doors, knocking on the doors of their neighbors, you know, going through nursing homes uh, and racking up their votes. Absolutely. Uh, Because waiting until the last, you know, 12, 14 hours on election day is just uh, absolutely foolish when you can, you know, I used to be in sales and marketing, lock up, nail down the order as quick as you can Don't wait until the last minute. If you can get the order, if you can get the sale, get it.
0: Yeah, that is good advice. And it seems like Republicans are waking up to it after a couple of years of trying to convince themselves they could pull it off on Election Day. I think they're seeing that that's not going to be the case going forward. It's going to be real interesting. I want to move to the intelligence community. So many important issues that we're going to finally get a chance to have a debate on because Republicans have some of the oversight committees in the House. Or they have all the oversight committee in the House. And I want to ask about something that really played out since the last time you and I were together a few weeks ago. We've learned so much more from the Twitter file releases of just how deeply involved the FBI and the larger intelligence community was in targeting Americans' opinions. These weren't Russians. These weren't China bots. These were Americans. And somebody in the U.S. government didn't like their opinions, and they set out and made requests, in some cases even put money on the table in the case of the FBI how disturbing as someone who stood as the top overseer of the intelligence committee when your house intelligence committee chairman how surprising that the government has moved this far into speech regulation
2: it's totally surprising and it's totally disgusting the intelligence community operates by a set of rules that says you operate outside of the united states you do not operate against americans inside of our borders you do not operate against Americans outside of our borders. Uh, you know, your foreign intelligence. Uh, it's absolutely outrageous. And remember, <clears throat> a lot of this happened under a Republican administration. This happened under Donald Trump. OK, where they're meeting the director of national intelligence. His office is meeting weekly with Twitter and who knows who else. Uh, And then you've got the chairman of the Intelligence Committee, you know, sending notes over to Twitter. It is totally corrupt. uh, And when Republicans get back the White House, there has to be a wholesale cleaning. Cleaning house of what's going on in the intelligence community. And from my perspective, there should be people going to jail for what they were doing. Okay, this is, it, this is scary for the American people that our intelligence community uh, is being used to target Americans and to censor American speech. The Government has no role there uh, and the intelligence community has absolutely no role. The leadership of the, and you know, this goes all the way back to 2016 with James Clapper uh, undermining A president-elect with Donald Trump. It continued with the Hunter Biden laptop. It continued with, you know, suppressing speech through Twitter. Um, And all of these things, it's, uh, you know, it's government run amok and fuels the whole narrative that the 2020 election was manipulated and stolen. Yeah.
0: It does. It does. There was definitely a thumb on the scale of the information that Americans could make for an informed judgment. And you see it now also with the vaccines and and mitigation strategies for COVID. There was an effort to suppress things that in many cases were true and would have allowed people to make their own decision for themselves with their own free will, informed consent. and 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 the suppression continued. Um, the FBI put out a statement under Chris Ray after all these came out saying, hey, we do this all the time. No big deal. You make it. This is a conspiracy theory to think that the FBI was doing anything wrong. Does the FBI understand what it looks like to the American people? And was that statement uh, even remarkably accepting of the sort of censorship we now have in front of us? Well, obviously, it,
2: it, it sanctions it and says it's OK. And it's like, no, it's not. I'm sorry, Director Ray. Um You know, because we and the Intelligence Committee, we also have oversight for foreign intelligence, the foreign intelligence that the FBI plays a role in. (laughs) No, you're not sanctioned to do this. Um, Even the, you know, the uh, the DNI, uh, you know, under Trump said. Well, you know, all we would be briefing Twitter on is, you know the foreign influence into our elections. And it's kind of like, no, you do not do this. The intelligence community does not go to private companies in the US, people who have no clearances or anything like that and brief them on suspected influence uh not proven and obviously what it was used for it was used to It was used to suppress conservative voices, and this is why you don't have intelligence professionals meeting on a daily basis or a weekly basis with social media and media outlets. You know, I think, uh, John, I had one occasion where I was asked by the intelligence community to be part of a meeting where we asked a major newspaper of record in America to withhold certain information from the American people because it jeopardized sources and methods. And we, we went to them and explained to them. So we went with Congress and the intelligence community. You know, the, uh, we went and we met with them and explained the seriousness they understood. Uh, and they would, I think they held back the information for two months until we could get ready and we could adapt for it. But it was was not a weekly thing where we're meeting with newspapers and saying, oh, you got it. You can't print this or you can't print that or, you know, here's the reservations that go away with it. I think it's probably the most scary and one of the most damning things that have come out of, uh, you know, when you take a look at what's happened and the stuff that's being coming, that's coming out and that needs to be investigated by this new Republican majority, the role of the intelligence community is perhaps the scariest. You know, the other one other thing on this, John. Where is the outrage from the American people? Uh, where is the outrage even from the media? That, you know, hey, hey guys, we were being played for suckers by the intelligence community and the FBI. And you know, and where's the clamor for free speech? It's gone.
0: It is remarkable. And all the institutions that rely on free speech, like universities, the news media, remarkably social media companies, they, their business relies on free speech. They're the most silent in sanctioning what's been going on. I had Senator Bob Torselli, retired senator from New Jersey, if I remember him, and he said, I never thought I'd live in a lifetime where the People whose business and, and livelihoods depended on free speech would literally yawn at uh, at the effort to suppress it among a certain part of society. He, he literally was in disbelief of the moment we're living in, and it just seems so incredible. I want to stay on the Intelligence Committee for a second, because I think the other big story that we were all kept from was the overwhelming evidence that our Intelligence community seems to have had early on that the eminence of COVID-19, the virus, came from a lab accident in China, in Wuhan. And we're getting more and more visibility into it now. And it seems as though even Democrats are acknowledging it. But the idea that for two years, that can be kept a secret and we can be lied to from people who knew what the real intelligence is, that seems to be a real concern for Congress and for everyday Americans.
2: Yeah, and I'll share with you in the next uh, couple of weeks information that does exactly that that exposes that the intelligence community knew about it Uh, people like fauci knew about it lots of people knew about it and it was covid was became a political issue it was weaponized and it was weaponized against donald trump it protected china and yes, how they, you know, and the scary thing is how they keep, how they kept this secret uh, for two years, three years, uh, you know, is, is amazing and changed the narrative of the whole COVID story. You know, just think about it. If we would have acknowledged on day one that this came out of a lab, it came out of a China, it might have escaped accidentally, but we would have held China accountable. We're now three years later, and what? No one has an interest in it anymore. And there's no accountability from China. So uh, hopefully we can get back to that and get the truth out. But the truth coming out really three years late is, uh, you know, is a, is a huge issue. And you know, a lot of people have just moved on from it.
0: Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. I wanted to ask. There's another component that I, I've heard from people say this, which is. If we could have ascertained in real time that this was a, a virus that escaped, we could have got the signature. We could have given China the ability to give us the signature of the viruses they were working with, which would have allowed us to create treatments and antidotes and other things for it much quicker than what we had to do when we were guessing at it and studying it. That's another component here that seems to, in the aftermath, become more and more important, which is we could have really sped up our reaction time if we all could have been honest about what had happened.
2: No, absolutely. I mean, you know, that that is that's painfully obvious. You know, China, you know, tried to influence the WHO. I still want to know what role Fauci had. How much money did we fund into the Wuhan lab? These are all who was protecting what? Uh, And the cost is we now have over, what, six, seven million people uh, killed globally and over one million people who supposedly have died from this in the United States. And we took a year and a half, two years to figure that out.
0: Absolutely stunning. And it may be that the Intelligence Committee had figured it out from the beginning and and just kept that suppressed. That's going to be the part that's going to be Most mind-numbing when when we get to it. Mr. Ambassador, it is always an honor to have you on this show. You do such great work, and you bring such clarity to so many of the issues that sound murky when we start in Washington. Great honor to have you on. Can't wait to have you on again real soon. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, John. Thanks, my friend. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back after these messages. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping
1: Dogs, a gripping murder mystery
0: All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. A big thank you to Cassandra Spencer. A big thank you for Pete Hoekstra for both of them really walking us through censorship, the election. of Kevin McCarthy, what's going on there? A lot of insights from two people on the front lines of a lot of history in the last few years. I feel like 2023 is the year the ice dam breaks and that we really get to the bottom of how widespread censorship throttling, thumb on the scale, government power in politics has been. It's certainly looking like it was far more extensive than we ever knew. And I think today's conversation with Cassandra Spencer furthers that notion. All right, folks, we're going to wrap it up for today. We're going to have a great show tomorrow. There's an amazing story playing out near the Texas border. A former Afghan Special Forces officer whose brother was an interpreter for the U.S. Army for years and is now a U.S. citizen, this Afghan Special Forces soldier fought alongside our men and women in Afghanistan for 20 years. He's been held in a Texas jail, not being allowed to come into this country. And if they deport him back to Afghanistan He almost certainly will be killed because of the fact that he is known by the Taliban to have been an American ally. We're going to have that story tomorrow. Be sure to tune in. A really powerful conversation there. All right, folks, we'll be back again tomorrow and on Sunday. We got some really great interviews, including with the former Capitol Police Chief on Sunday, Chief Stevenson, former chief. He's going to talk to you about why he believes the United States Capitol is still vulnerable to attack, that none of the lessons of January 6th, 2021 have really been learned. Quite frankly, he says none of the lessons from 9-11 were learned in the Capitol. The Capitol security is too politicized to be effective. We're going to have that. Also, the former chief of the EA special operations is going to talk to us about his concerns as well. A lot of big news. You're going to enjoy that on Sunday as well. So stay around. We'll have a good weekend of news on the John Solomon Reports podcast. Thank you for joining us. God bless you. Good night. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition.